following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. There are two kinds of life you can live as someone who claims to follow God. A life of sincere Christian faith and the life of hypocrisy, of the one who puts on a mask and puts on a show for those around him for pay. Now, what do these two lives look like? In case you missed it, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over again what they look like. That much of the time, these two lives that he sets before his disciples look exactly the same, at least in the sight of men. You see, true Christians strive to obey the law of God as the ultimate rule of their actions and interactions. And in chapter 5, Jesus told us, so do hypocrites. True Christians give to the poor. They pray in public and they fast on special occasions with others. In chapter 6, Jesus told us, so do hypocrites. True Christians are active in the corporate life of the covenant community. And in chapter 7, Jesus told us, so are hypocrites. True Christians in the history of the church have done great things for God, prophesied, cast out demons, even worked miracles on occasion. And just before tonight's passage, Stunning his hearers, Jesus told us, so did hypocrites, workers of lawlessness. And he will not recognize or reward hypocrites. With the metaphor of two builders constructing two houses on two foundations in our text this evening, Jesus shows us that the life of religious activity is worthless unless it is founded on earnest love for God in Christ. The life of religious activity is worthless unless it is founded on earnest love for God in Christ. So we'll look at this under two headings this evening. The trial of your life, verses 24 through 27. And then the Lord of your life, in verses 28 and 29. Beginning with the trial of your life, look at verses 24 through 27 with me. Notice how Jesus opens, therefore, this is uh, consequent to everything else that he's been saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially what he's just been saying as he's drawn these contrasts in, in harder and harder lines. Therefore, thus, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so he gives a picture now of life as home construction. This is something that we know quite a bit about living here in Cashville, South Carolina. You just look down the street. 
You see a new house go up every day in Emory Park. There's new houses going up uh, on the other side of this subdivision right behind the church. There are new homes going up down 101. That's one reason, perhaps, that we're seeking to labor so diligently here at Antioch, is that we might see this church built up as a house of prayer and worship as people move into our area. But Jesus gives this picture of life. Uh, He relates it to home construction, And what do these houses look like? The house of the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built it on the sand. They look perhaps exactly the same. There's a lot of discussion. Is the foolish man building a house of iniquity? Uh, As it were, a brothel upon uh, a a sandy flat in a valley, whereas a wise man is building a glorious and well-ordered palace up on the mountain. Um, Jesus doesn't give us that detail of what exactly they look like, but he gives us the detail of the foundation, which suggests to me that he's building on what he's been doing in the Sermon on the Mount all along. And he's assuming that these houses, they look basically the same. And the difference lies in that which is unseen to the human eye, that which is underneath, in the substrata of the home, beneath uh, the, the, the first floor, if you will. That's where the difference lies. The one true foundation of rock, which Christ paints for us here, is that of earnest love for God in Christ and His teaching. A sincere heart righteousness that rests upon Christ alone and recognizes Him as the soul's great interest. The house that's built on the sand, however has a faulty foundation. Interestingly, in this text, the word founded or foundation is really only used to describe the house on the rock. In verse 25, the word is not used to describe the house on the sand. It's almost as if there is no foundation to speak of whatsoever. Except if when you go over to Luke, it speaks of two foundations as well in the parallel passage. But be that as it may, the point here is that faulty foundations are everything else we put in the place of love for God and Christ. Everything else we put in the place of sincere faith in Him who has been teaching the disciples. That faulty foundation preeminently is self-interest. Our own selves and our own judgments, our own ambitions, our lusts, our dreams, our carnal hopes, our unbiblical ideas, perhaps our families, our jobs, our pursuits, whatever it may be, these are as so much grains of sand upon which to build a house. Uh, We might see examples of this in our own day, and I failed to mention them last week. I was beating myself up over it uh, uh, Monday through Friday, but uh, the message of prosperity gospel, hucksters. These false teachers who go around telling you that if you but have enough faith, life will be good for you. You'll have everything your heart desires, jet skis and four-wheelers and vacation homes and uh, big investment portfolios and all the like, if you just have enough faith. Or perhaps take out religion from it, self-help gurus. You know what you need to do? Life's tough. You need to take a little bit more time on yourself. You need to focus on yourself some. Make yourself the priority. What's missing in that message? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. What's missing in that message is this message of self-denial that Christ sets before His disciples. 
and call to follow him in love to God in him. But also, the faulty foundation, and really what Jesus is getting at in particular here, includes all those who pursue standing in the true church for their own gain and material comfort. Those who see a human society otherworldly in some elements perhaps, and yet accessible to them that they can use to get what they want in this world. Our service here in the church is not to be this way, brothers and sisters. If you're a seminary student in particular, and you're looking forward to a life of full-time ministry from which you'll be paid and you'll be provided for, watch over your heart. Truly examine yourself, interrogate yourself, even with this parable, and say, upon what am I building my life right now? Is it true love to God? Is it self-denying love for God and interest in Him and His cause? Or am I simply going down a path which will ensure for me gainful employment in this life? When I first moved here, a woman was cutting my hair, and her father was a Methodist minister. And I I asked her, I said, why was your daddy a a minister? Did he ever talk to you about that? Just making chit-chat, thinking, oh, yeah, he loved the Lord, da-da-da. And and I, I hit a landmine. I didn't expect it. She said, well, he said to me one time, I don't really believe in God, but this is a pretty good way to make a living. It's very comfortable. It's fairly easy. I get to be around people, and they're pleasant enough, and I get a lot of potlucks. I mean, I didn't shake my head. She was cutting my hair. But I wanted to. My jaw dropped. I couldn't believe what I had heard. It was stunning. But this is the reality. If, uh, if such were not the case in this day and age, Jesus wouldn't have given this teaching to his disciples. He knew the temptations that would come in his church and against his church. So this is the picture of life as home construction. What is the foundation? What do that, these houses look like? They may look exactly the same, but the foundation counts. And then Jesus proceeds after laying this foundation for his metaphor, he proceeds then to give a picture of trials in this life as a raging tempest. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And he uses the same language except in one minor detail in the two instances of the house on a shore foundation and the house on sand. The shore foundation, the picture or the word that's used, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it's significant. The word that's used is really slammed against the house, like a body slam. I mean, it's the full force of the trial comes against the house and the house withstands it to the uttermost. Much like Christ's temptation in the wilderness, he was tempted beyond anything any of us have ever experienced and he withstood the temptation to the uttermost. But the other house built by the foolish man on the sand It doesn't have a a storm raging, uh, slamming against it. It doesn't last that long. Uh, The word is almost as if the storm kind of stumbles upon the house and it falls over. Uh, Like uh, like perhaps I would if I was walking through my house at night in the dark and I hit a, a a, a bunch of toy bricks that my kids laid out. It wouldn't take much for me to to knock it all over the floor. And that's the same picture that's given here. So what are these trials that come against these two homes, if you will? Well, I think they include everything we face in this life. Trials now of sickness, perils, persecutions, disappointments, frustrations, uh, and, and desertions. But also trials later, namely that most 
dreaded of trials, death, and then after death, judgment before the throne of God. And note how these two houses stand up against such trials. The wise man's house endures, it perseveres through all these things, faced in this life or in the life to come, whereas the foolish man's house is utterly destroyed, like a double-wide in the path of a Category 5 hurricane or a tornado. It's just torn apart. There's nothing left. It is desolated. Not only does it fall, but great was its fall, our Lord says. This is the proof, then, of a life well-lived by faith versus the life lived by sight and self-interest. The wise man, in his trials, whatever he's facing, draws closer to God and experiences a strengthening of his assurance of God's love for him. John Owen Butler, a pastor down in Abbeville, had a close relative whose truck was picked up by a tornado and thrown over a house, ejecting the driver and severely injuring the two passengers. And the testimony of those three people, all of whom survived, was not one of, why would God do this to me? I forsake God. No, it was rather, praise God, we survived. We know his love in greater measure now than we ever did before. When I visited uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tunnell right after Amelia Rose was born, I didn't know how they would be responding. I was prepared for whatever they would have to say to me, but I was stunned. And it was a beautiful picture Mr. Tunnell just kept on saying, we just keep praising God. We praise God. We praise God Amelia Rose is here. We praise God she's alive. We praise God that the doctors are caring for her over and over and over again. These are the responses of true Christian faith, outwardly expressed. I can't see into the heart of anybody, but the testimony is certainly one that nobody's forcing them to make, and yet they offer it. And this is the testimony that a believer makes in his trials. Do you make this in your trials? When you face frustrations and discouragements, do you look to God and run to him and draw near to him that he might draw near to you and then experience his love in even fuller measure for you? That's what Christ is saying. The wise man's house withstands the rain, the floods, and the winds. Ultimately, Even death itself is vanquished and evacuated of all power when it comes up against this wise man's house, this life lived out of sincere love for God in Christ. Death goes from being an enemy to them being neutralized and simply a portal into blessedness heretofore unknown by us. Death becomes a great gateway into eternity and no longer the great mouth of of consuming horrors. The difference between a believer dying and a Christian dying, uh, or a a Christian believer dying and a non-Christian dying is is highlighted uh, perhaps in your own experience as you've witnessed close uh, close loved ones who did not know the Lord uh, approach their death and they're struck with fear and the questions come out and and they're wondering and and they're they're grappling with what it is, uh, how they can get out of this, how how can they prolong their lives and there's a nervousness and an anxiety but then the believer 
the mature believer at death, and this is not consistent across the board. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress makes this plain to us as different people have different experiences going across the river to the celestial city. But, and Bunyan was very wise to include that detail, but the mature Christian believer, the, the, the pattern is one of restfulness, of looking forward to, of yearning to go home to be with our Heavenly Father, to enjoy Him, to be released from all the pains of this life and the physical ailments and all the devastations of the world around us and to behold God and His face. David Hume and, uh, and uh, Voltaire, the great atheists of the Enlightenment, one Scottish, one French, it said uh, bo- accounts of both of their deaths, uh, the, the women who were kind of the hospice care workers of their day, Christians, said, never again do I wish to witness someone die like Mr. Hume or Mr. Voltaire. They were terrified. They were horrified. They were screaming in the face of death. No no shouts of victory or joy, but rather shouts of fear and terror. Boys and girls, when you come to that day, how is it that you wish to face death? Do you wish to be terrified in the face of it? Or do you want to look it in the face and say, you have no power over me, I'm going home to my Savior? This is the presentation that Christ gives now. The wise man who's built his house on the rock of sincere and earnest love for God in Christ, of faith in Jesus Christ, he will come up against any trial, even death glorifying God and drawing closer to Him, whereas the foolish man will be utterly destroyed, desolated, terrorized, shaken with the wind. The house of the wise man withstands the assaults of the storm of rain, torrential flooding and wind, for it is founded on a sure, rocky foundation. And our Lord instructs us in the way of endurance in this life of trial, of persecution, of temptation, of sin, even one that will end surely in death. And this is his instruction, to ground our very lives in the earnest love for God in Christ, whom every true Christian knows as the Lord of life. And this is pictured for us and described for us in verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, and I take that to refer to his entire sermon, but you think especially this climactic conclusion When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed, astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In this, we have two details, don't we? One is the authority of Jesus Christ, and the second is the response of amazement or the response of astonishment. The authority of Christ recognized by the crowds that he speaks as the Lord speaks. He's unique. He's not like our scribes who merely give commentary on Moses who say, well, some people think this, other people think that, this is most likely, but hey, you know, there's a variety of options here. I'm not really sure. Jesus comes and blows all of that up. And he says, this I myself say to you again and again and again. Build your life on my teaching, he says. And you shall withstand the floods and the winds and the rains. You will hold up under trial, whatever comes your way. What a Savior. Who speaks like this one? The God-man. He who is divine. 
He who speaks not only for God, but as God in the flesh. He pronounces his judgments over truth and error as God and man, instructing his disciples as the Messiah King promised in the Old Testament, come to fulfillment here in the New. He's teaching not as a mere philosopher, but as a great and mighty everlasting King, as David's son and David's Lord. And I think the crowds, if they don't understand it, they're recognizing that something about him. This response of astonishment that they have at Jesus' authoritative teaching and declaration, it's, it shows us that Jesus changes lives. Wherever he goes, whomever he touches, there's no, there's no staying the same after coming into confrontation with Jesus Christ. He encounters you, you will be changed. All will be astonished. But not all shall be saved. And that's one of the interesting details uh, implied by this text is, yes, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, but we know from the rest of the gospel that not everyone endures in following him. There's going to be a great falling away, even in his earthly ministry. And certainly, when he's hanging crucified, there are just a few who stick by him. He's forsaken almost entirely by all. And what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that it's possible to admire a teacher without becoming his follower. In the city of brotherly love, uh, before the founding of uh, this country, Ben Franklin was a famous pamphleteer and inventor, and he was also a famous deist. That is, he was not uh, a professing Christian, at least not uh, before the end of his life. There's some Discussion about, did he make a credible profession of faith before he died? I don't know. That's between him and the Lord. We shall find out, I suppose. But Ben Franklin loved to hear George Whitfield preach. And he loved hearing Whitfield preach so much that he even financed and sponsored Whitfield's preaching engagements when he would address tens of thousands of people in the city of Philadelphia which was really more like a village back then compared to what it is today, mind you. Why is that? Why, what would possess this urbane man of the world who doesn't believe in the gospel to invite this uh, fire-breathing evangelical preacher to come and to teach in Philadelphia? Well, I think it's the same dynamic that we see here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's possible to be astonished, to be impressed, to be amazed at teaching without believing it. And so Ben Franklin even testified. He said, well, I don't believe what Mr. Whitfield believes, but he certainly does. And so I like to hear him speak. Being amazed at a man's conviction without sharing it. It's an interesting, uh, interesting condition to be in. But let that not be said of you. What is your testimony of Christ's teaching as it comes to you week by week, Lord's day by Lord's day? Do you receive it with gladness or are you just amazed at Dr. Piper's eloquence and uh, amused at my little efforts Sunday night by Sunday night. My hope, my desire, indeed Christ's demand for you is to receive the word, to make it your confession of faith, to live your life on it. Nothing else will do you any good. Being merely amazed or astonished is not the same as sanctification. It's not the same as being saved. 
So what is your response to his teaching? Do you take it believing that this is the very word of God given for your salvation? Do you lay hold of Christ as he's represented in his word? And do you turn away from your own self-interest and say, use me, O Lord, in your service. Take my life and let it be given all for thee. What is your response to the reading and preaching of the word? How do you receive Christ's authority? That is what's confronting us whenever we open the Bible and go to it. And how do you respond to him? Christ gives us these two options, one of humble submission, earnest love, that is the wise response of acting on the basis of what he's said out of an earnest love for God in Christ, or the foolish response, being astonished, being amazed at this wise philosopher and good teacher as so many claim Jesus to be. There are but these two ways. The pragmatist may want to indulge the claims of Christ for his own temporal benefit, recognizing in it, hey, you know what? If I order my life like he says I should, then I'll actually do pretty well in the world. Uh, That'll be good for me. People will will respect me. People will treat my kids and my wife well. And you know what? That, That might actually work out pretty well. I'll live a pretty comfortable life. I'll get ahead in the world. I'll make friends and influence people. And then the especially foolish man will appropriate Christ's teaching and then frame his external life by it so that he might uh, bring to God on Judgment Day a record of all his good deeds and say, Lord, let me in. I did what your son said. I kept all the law perfectly. I was a peacemaker. I wanted righteousness and justice in the world. I signaled my virtue so that all might see and follow after me. Let me in. Sinking sand. Such was the vain piety of the Pharisees and the scribes, either self-advancement or self-righteousness. But this is just as hopeless for them as the self-destructive immorality that marks a life built on sinking sand in this world of the perversion that we see running amok around us. My friends, there is one rock, one rock, and that is God in Christ. In the life of religious activity, indeed, all human life and endeavor, any effort we put forth is worthless unless it is founded on this rock of earnest love for God in Christ. Without love for God in Christ, all is lost and left to ruin when the storms come. It will not hold up under persecution. It will not withstand temptation and sin. We see the church today buckling under these forces even now, but perhaps most urgently it will not uh, satisfy the justice of God on Judgment Day. It will be crushed under the weight of the demands of his perfect morality. And the trials of life and death and judgment will bring about a great fall to any edifice built on such a weak foundation. So, I plead with you to bow to the Lord of life and bow to him not out of slavish obedience or vain piety and self-righteousness, but out of earnest love for him. Love for this beautiful Savior who comes to us with all the mildness of a dove and yet all the power of a lion, declaring his truth that we might live who does not abandon us 
to our own imaginations, but rather condescends to us in love himself to rescue us out of the mire and the pit and the mud and the muck, to wash us clean and set us before his Father as cherished sons and daughters. Come to him with this, with this love which is born out of his Holy Spirit who makes known to us his beauty and his glories. For the world cannot recognize it, but we are born of another world. And being born of that world, we might build a house then that shall withstand the flood of persecution, the flood of sin and temptation that this world offers us. And then ultimately the torrent of God's righteous judgment in the next. So we come to Christ receiving from him that we might live lives of wisdom, lives that last, lives that mean something, but above all, lives that bring glory to God. For he is worth it. Amen. Let us stand together for prayer. O Lord our God in heaven above, we bow before you with humble adoration and admiration, but with much more, with love springing up out of hearts redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we praise you that you have not abandoned us and left us to our own devices, but you have given us your word that we might know you and that we might cry out to you in faith and with repentance, longing for that spirit which you have promised, who is of your very essence, who is very God to come and to lead us on lives of new obedience. Lord, glorify yourself in our lives. Toward that end, we now consecrate ourselves and dedicate ourselves to you. We give ourselves wholly and entirely into your service this week. Whatever we do, whether we read or we rest, whether we work or we play, whether we learn and study or write and preach, Lord God, we commit ourselves into your service with great delight and joy inexpressible, longing for the day when we shall behold you face to face, standing shoulder to shoulder with the saints. And Lord, we offer up to you a portion of that which you've given to us for our good and your glory in this world, and we ask that you would use it in your service, that it would come, even consecrated, to extend the boundaries of your kingdom. All glory be to God in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.